Mino Lion Media presents Pregnancy Pearls. Meet Dr. Nicole Plenty, a double board certified OBGYN and high risk pregnancy expert. She's brilliant, well researched, and feisty. Growing tired of seeing complications of pregnancy that could have been prevented, she wanted a way to empower women through knowledge. Because as she says, all doctors aren't created equal. This quest to educate women birthed this podcast, Pregnancy Pearls, with Dr. Plenty. Thanks for listening to Pregnancy Pearls Podcast with me, Dr. Nicole Plenty. Gang, it is already June. So we're in the first week of June. And that means we're almost to the halfway mark of the year. And guess what? I have not reached any of my summertime goals. Not none. And I mean, time just flew by. I told myself this year I would be great. I would add some resistance to my daily routine and get these thighs back in order. Well, that didn't really happen. Um, Yeah, it didn't happen. But I'm going to do um, more next year and I'm going to get right by my birthday. So my birthday is going to be my new goal. And let's be real, I'm doing pretty good doing cardio during the week. So I'm actually proud of myself for at least sticking to my cardio routine. But yeah, yeah, the way these thighs are set up, mm. But by my birthday, which is December, I will be right. I am dedicating and restarting that this is going to be right. Well, enough about me. This week, I've gotten a ton of conversations about the placenta. I know many of you don't even think about the placenta, but it is the organ that controls the pregnancy. If it doesn't work, we're in big trouble. But why is the placenta that important and no one really talks about it? Well, that's because it's complex. That's why your placenta or what you might know as the afterbirth is the workhorse of the pregnancy. If you remember the movie, the old one or the new version, now that there's two versions called Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, think of the baby like Willy Wonka, the face of the pregnancy, who you want to meet. Now think of the placenta as the chocolate factory. Now, it doesn't necessarily make the baby, but it is responsible for the growth and development of the baby. It's doing all of the work, okay? So how does the placenta do this? So the placenta is a temporary organ. So it's just used in the pregnancy. It attaches to the wall during the pregnancy, the wall of the uterus. The placental cells start to develop around 10 days after conception. Now, prior to the placenta being a functional organ, there's what's called a corpus luteum or a cyst on the ovary. Now this cyst releases progesterone, which is the hormone that tells your body, hey, I'm pregnant, stay pregnant. Don't attack the baby, okay? So that's what progesterone does. And the placenta takes over in this responsibility of producing progesterone for the pregnancy at about 12 weeks gestation. So the first cells start to appear 10 days after conception, The corpus luteum is doing its thing, keeping the first trimester quiet, 12 weeks rolls around, and then the placenta takes over as the leader in the second trimester. The placenta keeps the baby alive by supplying oxygenated blood to it and acts as a filter for blood, cleaning the blood that returns back to it. Now, the placenta also delivers antibodies to the baby. So when we say, oh, if you get this vaccine, this is good because antibodies are going to cross over through the placenta and help the baby's immune system. This is what we mean. The placenta has that job. 
Now, this helps the baby's immune system in the first few months after delivery. And the amazing thing about this is the placenta gets oxygen from your blood and delivers it to the baby's blood without mixing the blood. Okay, that's right. You do not directly supply blood to your baby. So when people say my blood is running through your veins, that's really not true. Okay, the baby has its own blood with probably a different blood type than you. Okay, now you do make up the reason the baby has that blood type is because 50 percent of your DNA is made, you know, the baby has 50% of your DNA and 50% of dad's DNA. So yes, theoretically, it is your blood, it's half yours running through the baby's body, but the baby has its own circulatory system, okay? It's not the mixing of maternal and fetal blood. They are not the same. And actually mixing of the maternal and fetal blood is actually bad, okay? It's actually bad. So we don't want that to happen. Now, the placenta also produces all kinds of hormones, okay, with different functions. There are hormones that allow you to have no milk production during a pregnancy. So it suppresses milk production. So you're not walking around leaking all day. And there are hormones that keep the pregnancy quiet, like progesterone and estrogen. It also produces hormones like insulin-like hormones, human placental lactogen that cause women to be more resistant to insulin, okay? Because it almost acts as insulin. This is why some women get gestational diabetes because they are resistant because of these hormones secreted by the placenta, okay? Now, the placenta is composed of mostly a ton of blood vessels that run through tissue called villi. Now, the villi then connect and converge to the umbilical cord, and the umbilical cord then inserts into the baby at the location of what will become the belly button. Now, sometimes the placenta... Although it is amazing, right? Because it's functioning as the lungs, the kidney, and the heart at the sa- and the liver, basically, at the same time, it can have some issues. And if the placenta has issues, then the pregnancy can have some big issues. So for starters, if we talk about the structure of the placenta, if that has some issues, it's mostly how it embeds into the wall of the uterus, Okay. So the placenta, if it embeds too tightly, that's called a placenta accreta, okay? It's invaded through the muscular layer. So we can't separate the placenta from the muscular layer. Or it can be an increta or a percreta if it invades through the uterine wall or even into the bladder, okay? Now, when this happens, because the placenta basically is going through the muscle of the uterus, doesn't matter how much of invasion is there, the fact that invasion is there, period, that would mean that you need a C-section or a cesarean hysterectomy at the time of delivery. Why? Because we can't detach the placenta from the inside wall of the uterus, so you have no choice. Now, the danger of this is if you don't know if you have a placenta accreta or not, then it's dangerous, right? Because you go in and labor thinking that you're about to have a baby vaginally, And lo and behold, the placenta is not detaching. You can lose a lot of blood. You can need a stat, meaning an emergency hysterectomy, because like I said, the placenta does not separate from the wall of the uterus. It tries. So you bleed and bleed and bleed and bleed. So you get a lot of trouble with an undiagnosed placenta accreta. When we know about it and we plan for it, these can be very safe deliveries, but it does mean that you will not have other pregnancies after that because 
you won't have your own personal uterus. Okay, now, that doesn't mean you can't have a surrogate. It doesn't mean you have to lose your ovaries, but it does mean that we need to remove the uterus. Sometimes there's what's called a focal creta, meaning just a little area that has placenta attached. And in some special situations, if you're not bleeding too heavily, they can give you what's called methotrexate to get rid of that small amount of placental tissue that's still there so that you can keep your uterus now. But traditionally, you would have to lose your uterus if you had uh, a placenta accreta, increta, or percreta, meaning the placenta invaded the muscular layer through the muscular layer or through the bladder, okay? And that's the safest thing to do. Now, why do some people get a percreta or an increta or an accreta and some people don't? Well, the biggest risk factors are previous scars on your uterus. So if you've had one previous C-section, the chance is pretty much only 3%. But if you had four C-sections, then the chance of you having a placenta accreta is 41%. So the more C-sections you have with a plateau about five C-sections, the more likely you are to have a placenta accreta or an invasive placental disorder, okay? And that would mean that you need a hysterectomy at the time of a C-section delivery. No, you can't deliver vaginally. It would be extremely unsafe. And that's because that old scar, if it implants there, then all of a sudden that placenta is too adherent to the old scar, which is still forming some scar tissue there. So myomectomies, C-sections, any incision, my, you know, any incision that's been on your uterus that invades the inside layer of the uterus can put you at risk. Now, obviously, if the placenta isn't over the previous scar, then the likelihood of you having a placenta accrete is very low. So that would mean that you have a higher likelihood that three to 41% that I quoted you is if you have a privia or the placenta covering the cervical opening, or which is the opening of the uterus where the baby lies, if you have that, then you are more likely to have a placenta accreta. If you don't have a previa, even if you've had four C-sections, the likelihood would be very, very low because the placenta isn't near the previous scar. Okay. So it really depends on where the placenta is to tell us how much of a risk you have of having uh, the placenta too adherent to the uterine wall or what's called an accreta, increta, or percreta. Now, a placenta privia, we just talked about. This happens when the placenta implants over the cervix or the opening of the uterus. Now, this is dangerous because it puts you at risk for bleeding. So even if it's not too adherent through the previous scar, if the placenta is over the cervix, well, you can't deliver the placenta before the baby. And if the placenta is over the opening, well, guess what's coming out first? The placenta, okay? Or at least guess whose blood vessels are being separated from the placenta? The placentas, okay? So you would need to have a C-section just to decrease your risk of bleeding. Now, in that case, if it's just a placenta privia or where the placenta is covering the opening of the uterus called the cervix, then that would mean that you don't need a hysterectomy. You just need a C-section. You can have other pregnancies after that. It's just safest to deliver via C-section to prevent heavy vaginal bleeding or delivery of the placenta before the baby, which could put the baby's life at risk. Now, the placenta can also abrupt. Now, this is when the placenta separates prematurely from the wall of the uterus. Now, 
sometimes this, uh, sometimes you have all of a sudden pain and a whole bunch of vaginal bleeding. This, these are symptoms, hallmark symptoms of a placental abruption. All of a sudden, somebody's feeling sharp pain. And I know that somebody's listening to this and saying, oh my God, I have pain. Maybe I'm abrupting. No, we're not talking about you. Okay. If you're having a placental abruption, you are having severe pain. Like you can't walk. Like you're standing up, crossed over. You can't keep still in the bed. You are in a lot of pain and you're having a vaginal bleeding. Okay. Pain and bleeding is a placental abruption until ruled out. Now, with a placental abruption or that premature separation of the placenta from the wall of the uterus, sometimes that's a little piece that's separated, like people that get in the car accidents or they have trauma, they fall, they can have a little bit of bleeding. We look and there's like a small clot or a small edge that's lifted of the placenta away from the uterus, but everything else is intact and your baby looks fine and you're not contracting your stable. Okay, those are people we can monitor for a little while, give them precautions and not deliver. However, if you have a heavy vaginal bleeding, the baby's heart tones look abnormal, meaning the baby's heart rate starting to drop, or you're having a whole bunch of pain, that would be consistent with a significant placental abruption. And that would mean that you need to be delivered. And it doesn't matter how far along you are, if you have a placental abruption that's symptomatic, that would mean an urgent C-section. We can't wait till you labor to deliver a baby if your placenta is abrupting. We can't give you medicines to make you contract because people say, I don't want a C-section. Listen, if you're in pain and you're bleeding and your baby's in distress, waiting another hour could be detrimental. So we have to move to do a C-section, okay? Actually making you contract or giving you medicines to contract will actually just make the abruption worse, okay? It'll make the placenta continue to separate. Then we're in an emergent situation. So we like to do things in as controlled of an environment as we possibly can. So placental abruption, surgical emergency, uh, that would mean you need a C-section. And then we have placental insufficiency. This is a tricky one because it's not as obvious, okay? This means that the placenta just isn't doing the job that it should be doing, okay? And how do we know this? Well, we really don't. It's a diagnosis of exclusion, meaning after we rule out everything else that's caused whatever's going on with your baby, if we can't find anything, then we call it placental insufficiency, basically. And usually this would result in a baby being smaller, which if the placenta is not giving good oxygen, good nutrients, then the baby will be growth restricted. It'll be smaller. And there are other reasons for babies being small, okay? And I'm pretty sure I've done a show about that. So go back, go ahead and listen to all the other episodes, catch up. But I'm pretty sure I've done an episode on having a small baby. But in a nutshell, it could be because there's something genetically going on with the baby. It could be because of infection like COVID-19 or the flu. It could be because you have high blood pressure. It could be because you have other comorbidities or autoimmune disorders. Those things put babies at risk for being smaller, or it could be medications that somebody uses. All those things can predispose a child to be smaller, okay? At least inside the uterus. But if we've checked off all those boxes, then we say, okay, is the placenta just not working as a reason the baby's small? The other thing the placenta can show us is blood pressure issues. So people that have preeclampsia, 
The baby didn't cause preeclampsia. The placenta caused preeclampsia. It's hormones released from the placenta that cause you to have preeclampsia. And these hormones start to work really early. 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 weeks, you start to have these this abnormal uh, hormone release that cause the vessels that embed from the placenta into the wall of the uterus. They remodel, called spiral artery remodeling. And they are just too constricted. They're not giving good blood supply from the get-go. And there's nothing we can do, especially if you're a first-time mom, to figure out, hey, you're going to be at risk for preeclampsia. We really don't know until you have one pregnancy. And then we say, okay, next time we'll do something different, right? So it can tell us, hey, you're preeclampsia. And with preeclampsia, you have high blood pressure, you have vascular damage, which we look for as protein in your urine. We know that the origin of that is the placenta. And over time, people with preeclampsia will also have a higher risk of having a smaller baby as well because the placenta is not functioning. Now, when these things happen, we look at the blood flow through the umbilical cord. Now, if there's abnormal blood flow, meaning the blood is not flowing continuously toward the baby, or there's periods of flow that are absent flow, okay? Meaning in between the pulsatile splashes of blood through the cord, there's periods of time when there's no blood, okay? There should never be a time there's no blood flow. Even worse, if there are periods of time where blood is moving from the baby back to the placenta, so basically the baby, remember Willy Wonka? is actually making the candy and giving it to the factory, right? That should never happen. The baby should never be feeding the placenta. The placenta should always be feeding the baby. So if we see, hey, this baby has episodes that it's trying to feed the placenta. It's that desperate. It's saying, hey, I'm going to give you something back so you can give me something back. It should never happen like that. So that means that you have reversal flow. It's moving in the wrong direction. And that's a very dangerous thing to happen. That tells us, hey, we got to get out. This baby's at risk for becoming a stillbirth because the placenta is not functioning in the capacity that it's supposed to do. It's not up for the job anymore. So we have to deliver the baby, put the baby in the NICU and let other people be up to the job. And moms have a real big problem with this sometimes because they don't want to deliver their babies prematurely because they know that preterm babies go to the NICU. But the issue with the placenta not working, there's nothing we can do. There's no pill we can give you. There's nothing that we can do, no voodoo, to make the placenta work. We can't control how the placenta works. You can't control how the placenta works. You haven't done anything to make your placenta not work. That's just the hand we've been dealt. Now, the lucky thing is, We can monitor growth periodically for people that we know have higher risk. And if you're screened with an ultrasound during your pregnancy, or if they do the little belly measurement, that's why they measure the tummy size. If they say, hey, this size is three centimeters less than the gestational age you're supposed to be, that'll prompt us to do an ultrasound to actually get an estimation of the weight. And if it's small, then we can start measuring the flow through the cord to predict when the baby is in danger and not. Technology has come a long way that we can then say, okay, we got to get out, right? And so this is the thing that prevents stillbirths from happening because of placenta insufficiency. Watching, waiting, and finding the optimal time to deliver so that we can maximize the time inside of the uterus, but not get into any danger, meaning stillbirth, and get the baby out to be cared for further. 
So at least we get a mom safely through a pregnancy and you eventually will go home with a baby. Yeah, sometimes that may require an early delivery. Sometimes, but it's the safest thing to do. So you see the placenta actually controls everything. Okay, everything with this pregnancy. And we don't even know about it. But I'm glad you learned a little bit today. So now that we know a little bit more about the placenta, let's go to some cases. Our first case is a 39-year-old who is pregnant with her first child. She is 33 weeks pregnant, but was told that her baby was extremely small, measuring more like 30 weeks. She had an evaluation of the placenta and was told there was abnormal blood flow with periods of no flow. She was given the option to deliver, but would like a second opinion. She states that she feels fine, her blood pressure is normal, and she can feel her baby moving frequently. She doesn't believe anything is wrong with the pregnancy. She wants to know why she should consider delivering. You know, I hate the word consider. I can't stand that word. And I get it. It is the patient's right. And the reason that your doctor probably said you should consider is because they want to give you the autonomy to make that decision. But me and my patients don't talk like that. I usually use the words, I recommend, I recommend that you do this. And if you don't do this, let's talk about what happens when you don't, if you don't. So I'm going to talk to you like I talk to my patients. Listen, your baby has a three-week growth lag. Your baby is small. The good thing is we already got the 33 weeks. We know after 32 weeks, neurologically intact survival is pretty dang on good. What we're going to be working on after that is usually the majority lung development. So we know babies may need to spend some time with oxygen or even intubated in the NICU. Of course, there's a very small chance of other complications of prematurity, but those chances are very small at 33 weeks. Even though your baby's growing out at 30 weeks, it's still a 33-week baby. Okay, so we expect it to act like a 33-week baby. So this is a really good gestational age that we've already gotten you to. Now, I recommend that you deliver because right now we have abnormal blood flow. Now, I will go back and retest to make sure of these things because I don't really trust anybody else's ultrasounds except for my own. And most maternal fetal medicine specialists are like that. We have to see for ourselves to double check to make sure that Things are consistent. It's not that we think other MFMs are bad, but you want to make sure before you're making a big decision, like delivering somebody's baby and putting them in the NICU, you want to make sure it's consistent, right? Like, is this intermittently abnormal or is it consistently abnormal? And how abnormal is it? Now, if you are 33 weeks and you have intermittently absent flow, meaning there are just periods that there's not good blood flow, but realistically, most of the time there is forward flow and we put your baby on the monitor and your baby looks good. Well, maybe we can get another week. Okay. And deliver you at 34 weeks. Now we don't really let people with any app, any abnormal doctors go past 34 weeks. Okay. Cause there's no reason to do that, but maybe we can get another week out of the deal. If you will have consistently absent flow. Okay. But no reversal flow, then maybe we um, need to talk about exactly what day we're going to deliver, but we need to move toward delivery. And if you have a reversal flow, then we de- we're not going to even wait till steroids are on board. Most of the time we're going to give you a dose and we're going to deliver you because when we have reversal flow or the baby is feeding the placenta, we don't know how long it's going to be before you have something like a stillbirth. Now, 
in all three scenarios, I would try to give you steroids for fetal lung maturity. Now, what are those? So there are two types of two different steroids in the same class. One's betamethasone and one's dexamethasone. And the one that you get will depend on what the hospital has. And honestly, there's a shortage of like everything right now, everything, okay? So some hospitals have betamethasone, some hospitals have dexamethasone. So it just depends on which one you have. Now, if you get dexamethasone, you're gonna have to get four doses of those 12 hours apart. If you get betamethasone, you're gonna get two doses 24 hours apart. But either way, those those steroid hormones cross the placenta, and they accelerate lung maturity in the baby. So the time that a baby has to spend in the NICU because of respiratory compromise with steroids is half the time a baby would have to spend if it didn't. So we we know that it makes a difference so much that if we didn't give you steroids, we have to document why we failed to give you steroids, <laughs> okay? Somebody can come in abrupting and need a stat C-section. On the chart, we still have to say, this is why this person did not get steroids. That's how important it is. So I would still try to give you steroids, which would mean I would put you on the monitor continuously to make sure the baby's heart rate is normal. If we have anything like the baby's heart rate is constantly dropping or drops and doesn't come back up, then that would mean that you need to move to delivery sooner rather than later. So you can't wait the 24 hours to get all the steroids in. But if the baby's tracing look good, we can at least get those steroids on board. But depending on the amount of abnormality, whether we have intermittently abnormal blood flow through the cord or severely abnormal, consistent blood flow through the cord, meaning the baby is supplying the placenta, that tells us the urgency in which we need to deliver. But for most people with absent, consistently absent Dopplers, they're going to deliver you anywhere from 32 to 34 weeks. Reversal flow, I don't care if you were 28 weeks, you need to have steroids and then get delivered. Okay, because we know that it's hard to predict when a stillbirth will happen with abnormal Dopplers, okay, or reversal flow through that cord. So I recommend that you have that done. If you decide not to have that done, understand that you carry a higher risk of having a stillbirth. And we don't want that to happen. I'd rather deliver a live baby and put that baby in the NICU as opposed to having a stillbirth. So we need to have a come to Jesus. So, I mean, consider if you may, but I recommend that you move towards getting delivered. And if you're not delivering immediately, you need very close monitoring if the blood flow is not that abnormal. Okay, so it really depends on the degree. The case pearl for this case is small babies have an increased risk of stillbirth. If blood flow through the umbilical cord is abnormal, then delivery will likely be required depending on how abnormal that blood flow is. All right, medical intern, what's our second case? Our second case is a 17-year-old who is 24 weeks pregnant with her first child. She was told that her placenta is low-lying, but not completely covering the opening of her cervix. Because of it, she was told that she might need a C-section. She really doesn't want a C-section and wants to know how she can avoid it. Oh, we all want to avoid a C-section, especially in somebody that's 17, you've never had any surgeries. And I'm not saying that we are more reluctant to do a C-section on somebody that's 17 versus 37. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that a 17-year-old is still a child, okay? And so we're putting a child who may be having a very difficult time coping with the fact that they're going to be a mother 
and may not have the support system as somebody that is 37. So a surgery, a major surgery, which a C-section is, would be a major adjustment for somebody that's having their first child at 17. Now, I will say I try to make sure none of my patients have C-sections. I only do C-sections when they're indicated. I'm the person that I'm going to induce you until the baby is like, if the baby tells me the baby needs to be delivered, then I'm delivering you via C-section. If the mom is not stable, then you need to move towards C-section. But if you're stable and the baby's stable, I'll roll with it, okay? Because I just want the safest outcome for um, the mom and baby. I don't put my patients on the on the clock. But there are certain reasons that we have to do C-sections. And like I explained before, when I was talking about the placenta earlier in the episode, when the placenta is completely covering the cervix, we know we have to move to a C-section. But if you have a low-lying placenta, then this is a little tricky. You're only 24 weeks. So I don't want to jump to conclusion because you had a lot more pregnancy to go before we determine if you even need a C-section. I see people all the time between 20 and four weeks, 20 and 24 weeks that have low-lying placentas, meaning their placenta, the lowest portion of their placenta is within two centimeters of the cervical os or the cervical opening, okay? Now, if it is within two centimeters, then you have a high chance of bleeding at the time of delivery because, again, when that cervix dilates to 10 centimeters, then your placenta is going to start uh, separating. So you're going to be into more bleeding. So if that's the case, you need a C-section to prevent that bleeding from happening. But being 24 weeks, what we should do is check again late in the third trimester, somewhere around 32 to 34 weeks to see if the placenta is still close enough to the cervix that's going to cause some issues. Now, with it being low lying and not completely covering nine times out of 10, that placenta, as the uterus grows and stretches, that placenta will shift up. It doesn't really move, but the muscle stretches. Okay. So the placenta moves up almost like the uterus is growing at a faster rate than the placenta, if that makes sense. So as the uterus grows and expands, the placenta will shift up and away from the cervical opening. So usually by the third trimester, something that we call low-lying early in the second trimester is usually not low-lying toward the end of the pregnancy. So what I would tell you is pump your brakes. It's too early to get excited. Let's not get excited here. Let's not judge the conclusion because nine times out of 10, it's going to be just fine come 34 weeks, okay? But at the end of the day, if the placenta is still measuring within two centimeters of the cervical opening, and that's on a transvaginal ultrasound, none of this, I'm going to look abdominally and I think it's two centimeters. No, you need to get a transvaginal ultrasound. We need to be up close and personal with the cervix so we can see exactly how far the placenta is from the opening of the cervix. Now, if we do that and it's 34 weeks and it's within two centimeters, then yes, baby girl, you would need a C-section. But it won't be the end of the world. I would encourage you to rally your support system. And I think I'd encourage anybody to do that anyway, because having a baby in itself is an adjustment, but you're going to be taking care of an incision. So you're going to deal with a little bit more post, um, post-operative pain with a newborn baby. So you are going to need the support if you end up having a C-section, but I would encourage you not to worry about this too much right now because you could be worrying yourself crazy for another 10 weeks for nothing. 
for nothing. I see this all the time. There are people, half the patients I see, I say, oh, your placenta is low lying. Your OBGYN is going to have to check at the in the third trimester to make sure it's shifted away. Or we're going to bring you back in the third trimester to make sure your placenta has moved away from the cervix. This happens all the time. So let's not jump to conclusion. All right. So the case pearl for this case is a low lying placenta requires a C-section for delivery if, and I say if with a capital IF, if it is still present at the end of the pregnancy. Your anatomy scan. It's too early to tell if that's going to be the case. All right, medical intern. Are we ha- do we have any emailed cases for today? Yes. And this one says, hi, I was told that I have preeclampsia and it was because of the placenta. I'm 31 weeks now and was told I need to stay in the hospital on blood pressure medicine because of it. I'd like to know why do I have to stay in the hospital and is there any way to prevent preeclampsia? All right, so I definitely have an episode from season one called preeclampsia, which I, I guess I need to do another episode on preeclampsia because it really does affect so many of us, especially black and brown women, that we really need to be reminded of these things. So yes, I agree that you have to stay in the hospital if you have preeclampsia. Preeclampsia is when you have high blood pressure and vascular damage. We look for that vascular damage as protein in your urine, okay? And Pre means before. Eclampsia is when you have a seizure during pregnancy because of hormones secreted from the placenta. Now, there's a whole bunch of theories about what causes preeclampsia, but realistically, we don't really know. My whole thesis was done on preeclampsia and eicosanoids and the role, its role in preeclampsia. So we know that eicosanoids do have a role in preeclampsia, but there has to be other things that are contributing factors as well. There's a lot of hormones that play a role in it, but we do know that those hormones are secreted from the placenta that we all agree on. Now, because these hormones or eicosanoids are secreted from the placenta, we now know that aspirin, low-dose aspirin, can diminish these hormones, okay, or block these hormones from being produced if you start it between 12 and 16 weeks with some benefit even up to 24 weeks, okay? So we start aspirin in all black and brown women now. That is an independent risk factor for preeclampsia. We start it 12 weeks. You're gonna take it every day. You can take it with your prenatal vitamin. You can take it without. You can take it with, with food. You can take it without food. But we want you to take it once a day all the way until 36 weeks or you stop it if you end up having issues with preterm labor have to be admitted to the hospital. But that can reduce your risk somewhere around 10%, okay? Some studies are up or 15%, but most studies quote around 10%. But any risk reduction we get is going to be best. It's better than none. So we know that baby aspirin or low-dose aspirin, 81 milligrams once a day, has very little harm, okay? But a lot of benefit if we actually started early enough. Now, if you're somebody that has a bleeding disorder or you've had a lot of bleeding early in pregnancy, please talk to your provider before you start baby aspirin. You should be talking to your provider before you start anything that I mentioned, because obviously I am not the person that is seeing and caring for you and going through your records. But do mention it because it's standard of care now that everybody that is African-American woman, regardless of your weight, regardless of your other comorbidities, should start baby aspirin to help reduce your risk of preeclampsia because we know it's so common in people of color. Yes, aspirin can be used to reduce your risk, but there's nothing that can completely prevent it. Nothing, okay? There's nothing that can completely cure it. We know that the treatment for preeclampsia includes a combination of magnesium that helps prevent seizures or eclampsia, 
from happening. Um, also, uh, we give you blood pressure medicine to make sure that you don't go in the stroke range, but ultimately delivery of the placenta, which would mean also delivery of the baby is what is going to get rid of those hormones that cause preeclampsia. Now those hormones can stay around for some time, but once you get rid of the placenta, those hormones should start to subside. Okay. Different people for different people, it takes a different amount of time to get rid of those hormones. So that's why some people can get preeclampsia even after the baby is born. You still have to be watched, okay, for those signs and symptoms of preeclampsia, which include a headache, blurry vision, and pain on the upper right side of your abdomen or stomach over your liver, okay? Those are symptoms of preeclampsia. We still have to watch for that, even if you had no complications in the pregnancy. But there's nothing that can cure preeclampsia, like prevent it completely. So to go back and answer your question, aspirin will help prevent preeclampsia with your next pregnancy. And you need to start at 12 to 16 weeks, talk to your provider about that. And you do need to stay in-house. Usually if you have preeclampsia with severe features, you cannot be managed outpatient. You would need to be managed in the hospital. You would stay there. They would check your blood pressure several times a day. They would check your labs periodically, you know, twice a week. Some people do three times a week labs to make sure that you don't have any issues with your kidneys or your liver or your platelets uh, while you are being what's called conservatively managed or not delivered, aka not delivered, um, and have the diagnosis of preeclampsia. So severe features, meaning you had high blood pressures that were 160 on the top or your systolic number or 110 on the bottom, which is a diastolic number, or, or uh, abnormal labs depending on how abnormal they are, they can push you to 34 weeks. Now, if you're somebody that has only no severe fe features, meaning you have mild range blood pressure, so all your blood pressures were under 160 systolic or, or 110 diastolic, and you weren't symptomatic, so no headache, no blurry vision, no pain over your liver, and you were compliant, you had transportation to get you to and from the hospital, um, if you needed to come back urgently, uh, and you're reliable, then some people, depending on the distance you live from the hospital, would allow you to go home and just come back once a week for testing or once or twice a week, depending, um, for monitoring and testing of the baby. So then you would need to be delivered by 37 weeks, okay? But that's mild preeclampsia. I assume that with you being in the hospital on blood pressure medicine, the latter would not be the case for you. You probably have severe features which necessitates delivery at 34 weeks or sooner. So if you have blood pressures that become uncontrolled, that means delivery. If your baby starts to look funny on the monitor, you got to get out of there. You got to be delivered, okay? If your labs become abnormal, get out of there, even before 34 weeks, okay? Because we are erring on the side of caution and we don't want anything to happen to you or your baby, okay? So it's safest to be there. All right, medical intern, do we have any more cases or questions? She's shaking her head no. So thanks so much for listening to Pregnancy Pearls Podcast. I hope you learned a little bit more about the placenta and the importance of it because it is definitely the brains of the pregnancy. If you or someone you know had a pregnancy complication or unique pregnancy situation, let me know about it. Email me at pregnancypearls at gmail.com to hear your topic or case discussed on one of our podcast episodes. Also, remember to follow me on Instagram at pregnancy underscore pearls and Facebook at pregnancy pearls. And 
And don't forget to catch up on the YouTube channel, which is youtube.com forward slash pregnancy pros with Dr. Pliny for more quick talks about pregnancy complications. In closing, remember to advocate for yourself. You are your biggest advocate and no one knows what's going on with your body except for you. Thanks for listening. Pregnancy Pearls is hosted by Dr. Nicole Lee Plenty. Produced by Nicole Plenty and Janine Brunson Johnson. Executive producer Ken Johnson. Find Pregnancy Pearls on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and rate. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice for diagnosis or treatment of individual medical conditions. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with specific questions regarding a medical condition. Pregnancy Pearls is a Mean Old Lion Media production.